Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Album Addicts, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. Joining us on this episode is a first-time guest co-pilot, Mr. Jeremy Riley. Jeremy, welcome to the Album Addicts podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here with you guys. I love this show. I think you guys do a great job, and you, you go into such detail, and you always got an interesting opinion and insight, so I'm glad to be here and, and excited to tackle this particular record for sure. Thanks so much. Outstanding. All right. So on this episode, we're going to check out Queensryche's 1986 album, Rage for Order. Jeremy, let's start with you. How did you get on board with Queensryche and this album in particular? Well, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but the first time I would have heard this album would have essentially been in real time. I don't know exactly when it was, but it was shortly after the album was released. I kind of grew up in a working class home and we didn't have cable or MTV, so... Um, the only way I got exposed to new music was through either word of mouth from friends, through the metal mags, or uh, through the brilliant marketing of the ubiquitous rock t-shirt, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Like I can remember back in the 80s, uh, you went down to buy a shirt and it was like 30 bucks for that shirt. And now you can get one for like five, a counterfeit one for like five bucks on Amazon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that that uh, inflation rate must be ridiculous. A shirt should be like $150 by now, I would think. But anyhow, there's this kid in school who was a year younger than, than us. And he had a different shirt every day. And one day he came in with this Queensryche Rage for Order shirt. And I'd never heard of them. But I knew two things about them. First, they spelled Reich with a Y instead of an EI, mm-hmm. which in the 80s metal world got them halfway to cool. Yeah. <laughs> and more importantly, they had an umlaut over the Y, which took them the rest of the way there. So <laughs> I was on board. I'm like, I got to check this band out. So the next time we were down at the mall, I got the cassette of the album. And um, I say I got the cassette because in reality, it was my friend who stole it for us. I think there's that guy in every group of teenage boys who just has to steal shit all the time, no oh, matter yeah, if it's no. for him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you just <laughs> tell him like, Hey, I need this. And he goes and gets it. And you're like, cool. So that's probably how I first got exposed to this band. I remember taking it home and I think, you know, I don't know exactly how I far, how far I got into this record, but I would guess it was probably about four tracks. And I decided that I hated this record. Um, <laughs> You know, at this point in time, it was all about the thrash. It was Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax and Slayer. And and when I heard this record, I thought, man, this is weird and it's lame and it's not metal at all. So I turned it off and I tossed it aside. I probably traded it for like an Iron Maiden Trapper Keeper or something. <laughs> but it would be a couple of years before I'd really even tried Queensryche again. And really are three things that kind of turned me around on them. And the first was when Metallica took them out on the Damage Justice Tour. Now, as an adult, I realized that probably had nothing to do with Metallica whatsoever and was a management decision. But at the time, it gave them some credibility. And it was a cool show. We didn't know really what they were singing about, but we enjoyed the show when they opened. The second thing that happened was by this time, I was living with a friend and we did have MTV. And like so many other Queensryche fans, I think... um, it was the eyes of a stranger video that really sucked me into this band. That thing was so cool. And it, it just was so different than anything else that was, that we were hearing. And I think one of the the worst labels Queens rock ever gets is a hair metal band because that's not what they were. No, um, no not at all. Not at all. And, and then, you know, they, they have the label of a, a progressive band, which I think I agree with, but they're not a prog band, if that makes sense. I think there's a difference between the two. And Queen's Arc is always just a little more experimental, I think, than proggy. But uh, I really dug that video. And the third thing that really put me over the edge and I think got me into this record 
was when I discovered marijuana because <laughs> this is music. Yes. Yeah, this is music meant for the details. This is a headphones band. You slap the headphones on and, you know, you really find out this band has more in common with like Pink Floyd than Black Sabbath, for instance. So, yeah, in a very short period of time after I got into Mind Crime, I, I went through the back catalog and Queensryche really became my favorite band at that time. They were just kind of sitting in that pocket between the thrash era and then where music was headed. Kind of an outlier. They They never really had their time, but... Yeah, it was something new and fresh and different from the thrash world, and I, I just loved it. And it, it turned that Eyes of a Stranger video and, and this album just turned me around on the band completely. It, it's kind of too bad that they went to shit after a while uh, when mm. Chris DeGarma left the band. They just were never the same again. But during this era, I mean, this music was just so cool. Loved it so much, still do to this day. And uh, yeah, it's great to be on here and talk about this record. All right. Ray, we covered Queensryche before with Operation Mind Crime. Mm-hmm. So kind of remind the listeners about your history of Queensryche and how you came to Rage for Order. Um, so my first exposure to them was on a comp- Headbangers Ball compilation thing. It was like, it actually was like a Halloween episode hosted by Alice Cooper. And they had the video for Queen of the Reich, which I thought was mad corny. <laughs> at the time, though, but kind of, you know, kind of like Jeremy was saying, so I, I liked a lot of like the speed metal and thrash metal at the time. So I wasn't getting it at all. Yeah. Then they came out with Empire. And then Silent Lucidity was just everywhere. And at the time, I was like, these guys are Pink Floyd ripoffs. I don't get the, the appeal of this song whatsoever. Jet City Woman did nothing for me. Right. Um, it probably took me until I was in my 40s to come back. And like when I got on my brother's Spotify account, I got to check out everything that I had missed. And I said, I'm going to give Queen's Rack a shot. Yeah. And uh, Operation Mindkind I got into. And actually, when you and I were working together, <laughs> yeah. you had mentioned Rage for Order as being kind of a different album. Yes. And I checked it out. I dug it. Six months later, I tried it again. I wasn't digging it. Mm-hmm. And now we'll see what happens. Okay. What my final results will be for this <laughs> All album. All right. All right. <laughs> As I said before on the podcast, I got into Queensryche with the Operation Mindcrime album. I love that record, still do. And then I got Rage for Order next, probably a couple months later on cassette, because I knew Gonna Get Close to You off it. That's the first song I ever heard by Queensryche. And I like that track. There's actually not much else to tell. It just sort of solidified my fandom of this band. Nice. And there it is. So here are some basic facts about this record, exactly as it appears on Wikipedia. <laughs> Rage for Order is the second studio album by American progressive metal band Queensryche, released on June 27, 1986, on EMI America Records. It was produced by Neil Kernan and was recorded from 1985 to 1986 at MDH Studios, Bellevue, Washington, with La Mobile Remote Sound Studio, Mushroom Studios, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and Yamaha Studios, Glendale, California. It reached number 47 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified gold by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We've got Jeff Tate on lead vocals and keyboards, Chris DeGarmo on guitars and backing vocals, Michael Wilton on guitars and backing vocals, Eddie Jackson on bass and backing vocals, Scott Rockenfield on drums and percussion, and additionally, Neil Kernan is on keyboards, and Bradley Doyle is on emulator programming. All right, let's jump into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We lead things off with Walk in the Shadows, written by Chris DeGarmo, Jeff Tate, and Michael Wilton.
Jeremy, what do you think of this? Man, I fucking love this song. This is not only an amazing way to open this record, but this is one of the best Queen's Rake songs, in my opinion, ever. Maybe top ten, maybe even top five. I don't know. But this one, um, you know, to me, the most the most important tracks on the record are the opener and closer. I think that really sets the tone for everything in between. And man, they nailed it here. Uh, I don't understand how this wasn't the first single or they didn't release a video for this song. Um, they did going to get close to you, as you said, Aaron, but I, this seemed like the perfect song to release as the single. And I don't know why they, they I think they did release it eventually as a single, but they didn't yes. do a video for it. Um, and this is the one that feels like it would have been the most commercially accessible to me, but I love the way that immediately we're dropped into the groove of this song. We don't have any long acoustic intro and there's no three minute classical piece or, uh, we don't open the record with an instrumental, all those kind of cliche things that were going on at that time. We just go straight into the groove of this tune and what a groove it is. The groove really makes this song. It never lets up from beginning to end. Uh, Rock and Field holds this thing together and propels it forward from start to finish. And it's a beautiful example of what he brought to the sound of Queensryche. Speaking of those drums, you know, I remember back in the day looking at the magazines and they would show the bands out on tour and they always showed Rock and Field with an electric drum kit. And I always assumed that's what he recorded this record with which would have been, for metal, pretty unusual even back then. But I saw an interview and some message board posts that the producer Neil Kernan made on this album, and it sounds like these were acoustic drums. They're dry as a bone. They have, a, they have such fast decay on them. They almost sound like a, almost a reverse reverb or something. They're very brutal on here, and, and you hear that right away. But, but Scott's awesome on this album. We get a, a really cool dual guitar riff uh, to open the record that sits right in the pocket of Scott's groove. I love the way Queensryche would take advantage of having two guitarists. There's so many metal bands with two guitarists that 99% of the time they're just playing the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's not really Queensryche. I mean, they were a great example of how to take advantage of having two guitars. Um, Not just, you know, the dual guitar harmonies or trade-offs on the solo, but actually baking two different guitar parts into a single riff. Um, It's awesome, and it's all over this record, and I love it. The guitar sound itself, it's also pretty unique. I think it kind of bucks the trends of the time, which was scooping the mids and just dripping the sound in saturation. Queensryche, to me, it sounds pretty full of mids in my ears, and it's not really distorted. I think the primary overdrive uh, in that guitar sound kind of comes from the right hand when DeGarmo and Wilton are really digging in the strings. It kind of gives it almost a percussive bite rather than a, you know, a highly distorted, saturated sound a brightness and a snap to the guitars, which is unique to Queensryche. And it's really kind of unique to this record, even in their catalog. Uh, very cool. Great opening riff. And it, interestingly, this riff never comes back in the song. We get, I think it's eight bars of it. And then it's just gone. This is a three and a half minute song that we get five different riffs in without even including the solo. And you really don't even realize it. And normally I'd say that would be an indictment of a song, but I think in this case it works great. I think it's perfect. Um, the band stays within the song, within the groove. Part of the appeal of Queensryche is digging under the surface of what you're hearing to get into the details. And I think when you do this, this band really rewards you like no other band does. I love the guitar riff under the verses. The phrasing that Chris DeGarmo uses is almost hypnotic. It's got this liquid feel that just kind of moves under the vocals in a really interesting way. Um, I think it's brilliant in its subtlety, and it's a great example of what makes Queensryche Queensryche. You're not going to hear 
a wall of power chords from this band. They're going to do something unique and different and smart. So love that about this song. We get a great trade-off solo in the classic Queensryche uh, style. Transitions into a kind of a harmonized section that builds and climbs until it drops us back into the course. Expert execution in the way they end that. Uh, I think vocally, Jeff sounds great on this song and across this record. He's got a bit of a, a growly edge to his voice, almost a menace, which is unique to this recording, I think. A couple bumpy spots here and there, and he would get more refined over the next couple records. But I think this is the best Jeff ever sounds on any Queen's Rec record. I love the way he soars on the course of this song and the gang vocals when they yell, walk with me. Uh, it's just a rapturous moment. Lyrically and thematically, there's this is interesting because I've seen a lot of people over the years kind of suggesting that there's a theme here of vampirism in some of these songs. And when you see how they looked at this time, they were really gothy and kind of looked that way. And I, I, I never took that too serious. But as I dug into some of these lyrics for this episode, um, I think there's maybe a little bit to that. And I'll try and kind of point those out as we go. But this album's just always felt like when I listen to a good concept record, it has a certain feeling to it. And even though this isn't a concept record, it's always kind of had that feeling to me. There's something about it that just seems to work together. And I kind of suspect that we know, of course, Mindcrime would come next and that would be a concept album. And I, I wonder if the band wasn't already trying to head that direction and maybe had some ideas that just weren't fully developed yet and didn't come together. I think so. Mm. Yeah, I feel that in that song, in this song. And, and again, I'm going to try and point that out as we go. It seems kind of, you know, on a, on a base level, it seems like we're talking about maybe kind of a hidden love affair. But, you know, the ideas of moving in the dark, dreaming during the day, when you add that to the context of some of the songs that are followed, it seems like there's a bigger idea at work here. It also feels like there's a missing narrative to this record. There's so many songs that you just feel like you don't have enough pieces to put together. It's almost like opening a book and reading the chapter in the middle, but nothing before or nothing after, and then trying to make sense of it. it it's interesting because they, they, they work on their own, but they also seem to, to be alluding to something larger that we never get the whole picture on. So again, I, I just wonder if they weren't kind of moving down that road. Uh, towards a concept record and either they ran out of time or they just didn't feel it was fully developed. I don't know, but uh, we'll get to that as we go. Uh, but yeah, this is a great song. We wrap it up with a kick-ass outro with Rock and Field just rolling around his toms and a big crescendo that builds and then we're just done. And in summary, I think it's a brilliant song. I think it's one of their greatest songs and a perfect song to open the record with. Excellent. Great. Well, um, Jeremy, you touched, you touched on something already that I, I, I agree with you completely. Um, there's some great guitar interplay on this song. I, through that, a lot of their songs, there's some great guitar interplay. And then you're absolutely right. You're never going to get like them bludgeoning you over the head at the same riff. I mean, they take and they make two intelligently crafted parts and meld them, find a way to meld them together. And specifically with this, this, this intro, which I think is awesome. And I didn't even really notice that that's the only time that they play it, but it's true. Yeah. They kind of give you your little yeah. sample, that's your appetizer, and then you get the rest of your entree. But what I like, one of the things I liked about that, you get like a little bit of like a feedback kind of a squeal like in there. And all of a sudden, the next time they come back to it, it's like Jeff Tate screaming. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of a pretty smart choice on their part. You got some great vocal harmonies on the chorus. I mean, these guys, just the way they arrange their vocals, um, they got to give people should tip their hat to them a little bit more because there's a lot more to it than just, you know, a guy trying to be operatic or scream his head off. They really arranged the piss out of these vocals. I even like the, uh, you mentioned the gang vocals on the walk with me part. I mean, at the time, I mean, 
I mean, I guess you could probably say it's like, oh, you know, this sounds like, you know, some sort of like, hey, hey, like, yeah. you know, Def Leppard kind of a move. Like sloganeering kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you know, but no, it sounds actually, it does sound pretty badass. When it comes to the solos, I can't tell, are, are Wilton and DeGarmo trading off or is it just one guy doing They're trading off. On this song, they are. They are tra- yeah, yeah. Yep. This all, and I got to tell you something, and I found this duo more endearing on this one than I found them on uh, Mindcrime, because... They're odd ducks, man. <laughs> they can rip it Very. up. They can do like all like you know like the '80s kind of guitar solos and really shred if they want to. But that does not seem to be the focus of what they do. It seems like more the songwriting and textures are more important. And um, when they do actually let go and rip it up, it's awesome. I think my biggest complaint on Mind Crime was I didn't think the song the solos were longer. They like give you like a little bit of a taste and then they stop. You get a little bit more this time. So that's actually. Um, that that was kind of for me was pretty refreshing, and I like how they just milk the ever loving piss out of the chorus on the way. It's <laughs> taking, it's like we're gonna we're gonna keep it in the one key. Oh, let me go back on key things. During the solos, it's there's some like key changes. I mean, it's going from the, like the it almost like they changed like pentatonic riffs. Like they're playing like I don't even know what the key is, but like if they're playing in the tonic note and they're playing a, a pentatonic scale based on that, it sounds like they changed the scale to match the next chord. And there's just like a major second difference between the two of them, but it makes a really kind of sounds off. It almost reminds me of like, um, blind melon does it a little bit on uh, the solo for no rain. Mm-hmm. The guy's definitely playing a blues lick in a different key over the key of E, which doesn't sound like it should work, but it works. Yeah. Um, and so I got to give him credit for that too. And this is like one of my favorite songs off this album. I got to say, there's a bunch of them on here, but this one is probably my top two songs in this album. All right. Yeah. To me, this is a typical Queensryche sound with those heavy guitars that chug in the verses and great interplay in the choruses. All three of us are saying that strong drumming and everything is soaked in the eighties production though. There's a gloss to this, especially the vocals are just drowned in reverb. That was a huge eighties trope. Jeff Tate brings his patented Halford meets Dickinson vocals, and they're in the forefront of the mix. I mean, for most of the 80s, he was considered one of the top metal vocalists. The guitar solo slip between the two guitarists, and it ends with that harmonized passage that's cool as shit. The chorus is catchy and built up with multi-tracking. It sounds huge, very 80s again. The lyrics seem to be about a vampire obsessed with one of his victims and wanting her to join him. I read that it was influenced by the novel Interview with a Vampire by Anne Rice, which romanticizes vampiric culture. And actually, I think, sort of alluding to what Jeremy was talking about, I almost see this as a an album of two halves, like the vampire half, and then like the man <laughs> yes. versus machine oh, Terminator okay. half. Yeah, okay. That's kind of how, that. yeah. how I view this album. I love this track. It's a great opener. We're all saying this. This was the third single from the album, but none of the album's singles did anything on the charts at all. The next track is I Dream in Infrared, written by Jeff Tate and Michael Wilton. Jeremy, let us have it. Uh, so we get our first, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I guess we'll call it a power ballad, although I feel like with Queens, right, that might be a little too reductive, but we'll call it that for a lack of a better term. 
the first 20 seconds of this song, we just have kind of a bass thumping in and some acoustic behind it. Really reminds me of the Empire era, uh, specifically if you know the song Della Brown and how it starts. It's very reminiscent of that. We go into the verses, which play out like another song on that album called The Thin Line. It reminds me of that one as well once we get to the verses. We get our first taste of how prominent the keyboards are going to be on this record. I'm personally not the biggest fan of keyboards in metal. I, I don't mind them when they exist for ambiance, more so than carrying the melody of the song. But they're a pretty key part of the sound of this record. And in that vacuum, you know, they don't really bother me. They do date the album to this period a little bit. But even then, keyboards weren't really, in 1986, a big part of metal. We kind of moved past that. Uh, and so it's a little unique to this record still, and it, it, it gives it a, a different element than anything else they would do. Guitar is okay here. Some nice stylings on the acoustic. I think you can tell this is a Wilton song. I love Whip, but I don't think he has the same detail in his writing that DeGarmo has. Uh, he wrote some killer tunes, but I never felt like you know, Wilton's songs didn't, they, they just didn't have the same detail that you could discover as you dug into the tunes. I, I like the part in this song on verse two, uh, is Jeff singing when we first met, I must've seen the million miles away. There's a little guitar that comes in. It's almost kind of between a harmonic and feedback. And it just kind of lays there behind the vocal line and everything that else is going on. And it rises with the song. And it's a really a cool touch to that part of the tune. I think Jeff sounds a little flat on this course and it bothers me. They're layered vocals in there as he kind of call and response with himself sort of. And, and we'll see that a lot through this album. Solo is okay on this one. I think it's pretty forgettable, honestly. Um, we get an outro that connects to the intro of the next song, which is something we're going to get over and over on this record. Uh, I think that's one of the elements that kind of lends this a concept feel to this record is the way the tracks connect. We basically get kind of a little acoustic outro and some keyboard stabs and bells that lead us out into the next song. Lyrically, thematically, I think we're kind of in follow-up territory to Walk in the Shadows. Um, we've got our narrator telling us that he only sees an infrared, which, of course, is a technology for seeing in the dark. He alludes back to the shadows from the first track. He characterizes his relationship as a masquerade, uh, hearkening back again to a hidden and secret relationship. We get references to how he can't dream anymore. By day, we'll live in a dream. Um, I guess the dream is dead here because we hear his eyes have never <laughs> been so black. So he's really struggling in this one. Yeah. Super cognizant of how we tend to see what we're looking for. So I don't want to put too much stock in those lyrics, but I do feel like it kind of ties into that vampire theme again. Overall, this song is just okay to me. I think the big problem for me with this track is the sequencing. We get this massive groover to start the record, and then this thing comes in, and I feel like it just sucks the energy out of the, the start of this record. I think it would have played a little bit better if it were later in the track listing, but you know, when you look at the track listing, I don't know that there's a, a place that it really makes a lot of sense anywhere else in the album either. So maybe this is as, as good of a place as they could find for it. No, I agree with you. I think that there is a sequencing issue with yeah. this record, and it's really prevalent later on. But yeah, I know yes. what you're saying. Yeah, uh, reminds me a lot. I remember back when, just before Empire came out, there was a movie called Ford Fairlane. I had Andrew Dice Clay in it, of all people, if I remember <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
And Queensryche was asked to submit a song for the soundtrack to that record, and they sent The Thin Line, which would eventually end up on Empire. They sent that song in, and they came back, and they said, well, we want moody Queensryche, but we don't want quite that moody Queensryche. Uh, <laughs> so I think they ended up with Last Time I'm in Paris. Paris. On That's that a soundtrack. great track. Yeah, that is a pretty awesome it track. It is a great track. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And Thin Line ended up on Empire, but it also ended up as the second track on that record. And it just really reminds me of this record, the way we go from one – you know, the first song being energetic and, and high tempo, and then we immediately get drugged down into a slower song. I like the thin line a lot better than this one, but either way, when the band recorded this record, they they wrote the song and recorded the song Prophecy, which would end up as a B-side to, I think, Gonna Get Close to You, the single, uh, would eventually be added on to their EP upon a re-release. And I've always felt like I wish they would have taken the song Prophecy and put it here instead. If you are familiar with that song, it's kind of a mid-tempo rocker, but it would fit really well with the first three tracks of this song. And I think it would have been a superior way to start the record. But in summary, you know, all this talk about Dream in Infrared is kind of making me sleepy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, this isn't a oh, I thought you were to sleep there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Copies. Copies will make him Shit. sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the only thing more uninteresting in this song is me. So, oh, oh no. Oh, hey, no. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, not, not the greatest song, and I don't have any fancy taglines, but I'd call this one my stinker if I had to give it one. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, what do you think? Um, it's, it's all right. I do. It does seem to like be a weird choice to come right after that song. I don't really get it, but hey, you know, it's like they say in that ad, we all make our own decisions, right? I do like the clean guitar intro. The keys, I agree, are definitely really dated. Like, I mean, this is like something you can hear, like, you know, the movie intro voice, like, this summer, coming to a theater near you. <laughs> you know, and that's, a, that's what kind of, like, brings to mind when I hear it. I like the clean guitar in the verse section, too. I think that's actually really decent. Uh, I just, I guess, is that Wilton doing that, probably? This is one of his songs, I'm guessing? Yeah, he you, yeah. Guys were, you guys were just saying that was Wilton's. Um, they have a nice key change when it comes to the solo, and the solo itself is uh, tasteful. You know, I'll give it that. I mean, it's not really... I like I mean, it. Yeah, yeah. It's not really super shreddy. I think it just says what it needs to say and moves out, but it doesn't doesn't really particularly grab me any, but, you know, it, it doesn't suck, you know? It's um, definitely better than Talk Dirty to Me <laughs> in that solo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they make a really interesting change. They go to a weird kind of weird key change in the end. With the uh, and just goes back to keys and guitars, and I didn't even think of it as the setup to the next song. But that's actually a pretty cool observation, Jeremy. I didn't look at it that way. Yeah, uh, I like this song a lot more than the both of you, apparently. <laughs> Though I do totally agree that it's play strong. It shouldn't be the second yeah. track. The verses are quieter with arpeggiated guitars and atmospheric keyboards. And then the chorus brings the heavier chords. And though the tempo is slow, to me it's not quite a ballad. It does a good job kind of balancing the lighter and heavier elements. The two guitarists play basically the same riffs with minor variations between them. And Michael Wilton's guitar solo is melodic and tasty. I like it. Jeff's vocals are pleading and emotional, though the lyrics seem to be about becoming emotionally distant from someone you love. It could also be another vampire song. As the narrator seems only able to function at night, I think that's what they are going for, the vampiric section of the album. It's got another big chorus. I dig this song, too. I really do. Oh, I don't, I don't dislike. I, I, it's just a weird choice. I, they could have placed it better, I yeah. think. Somewhere. I think the whisper should have been the second track. Oh, okay. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. It should have gone yeah. right into that. All right. The following track is The Whisper, written by Chris DeGarmo. Yes. The 
Jeremy, you like this one? Yeah, this is more like it. We get an awesome descending riff to start this song off, which is just a pure metal riff. The second guitar comes in harmonizing that riff and expands the soundstage out. It's just a, a, an awesome start to this tune. I think it's a highly underrated song. Rockenfield's groove is back in full force on this one. Um, I think he adds the most interesting element of this song with just his hi-hat on the verses. And he kind of keeps his own time through the verses, which just comes around to meet the chorus perfectly. And it it really is maybe the most distinct development of the whole song. And it's the part my ears always lock onto and to this day. We get the song punctuated with keyboard stabs and a lot of ambient background. It's an essential part of this song. Simple but effective chord progression under the verses with a cool little run between the lines. DeGarmo is a master at making just a few notes sound massive, and he does it here uh, to great effect. Um, we get a really cool octave bass chord progression in the pre-chorus leading into the chorus. I love the way the whispers, the name of the song is the whisper. I love the way the whispers sit in the chorus and, and Jeff kind of, they set the table for Jeff and he just sounds great on this track. The solo, just kind of an extended version of the main riff with the harmonized guitars, but it works really well. It's great. Mm, it is. Yeah, great. We get to the outro where there's some spoken words that are sampled in. I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> it sounds like maybe a girl at the end screaming, kill us all, but I'm not even sure that's what she's saying, but that's what I hear. But this little trick of sampling those voices over a hanging outro, we're going to see that many times moving forward through this record. And it's part of the connective tissue of this record, I think. Lyrically, thematically, uh, again, we seem to fit this back into what we've been talking about already. It's kind of, it sounds on the surface kind of like an 80s fantasy metal type thing. Like thematically, it would have fit on the warning really well. But we also get a few lines like, Cold is the viper stalking the night, which kind of sounds like the vampire thing again. Blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, time is the promise. We get the innocent victim awaits. I'm your master. You're my slave. Voices are calling me back to the day as in immortality, which is something we'll hear again. Free under the night sun. The fear of the hunger will always be there in my mind. The morning will close a new page. All of this kind of leads me to believe that there's a bigger narrative here that we don't get the full picture on. But overall, great tune. I think it's a little underrated, and I love this one. All right. Ray? The song is the tits. Um, <laughs> it really is. You got this really kind of slinky, vaguely almost Middle Eastern sounding kind of a guitar riff, and then they, they add to it by harmonizing a little bit on it. It's really awesome. The funny part is, and I, Jeremy, I swear to God, we must have like had sort of like ESPN going on this one, but the keyboard stabs. Yeah. <laughs> are hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And it's funny because those kind of things were oddly adopted by the, the New Jack R&B movement that happened like in the late 80s and early 90s when they were yeah. trying to incorporate yeah. like a yeah. like heat sweat don't be, and yeah. stuff like that. Later New Wave had it too, like yeah. cars. Oh yeah, yeah. Stuff like this. <laughs> it's like, there's like a line between, you know, <laughs> Greg Hawks, this song, and then <laughs> Belle Biv DeVoe. <laughs> Poison! Yeah! Um, I love the pre-chorus in this one. Once again, like another case where a band writes a great pre-chorus. And they, these guys are definitely capable of that on top of doing super catchy choruses. The chorus itself is really awesome. Um, I almost get the impression that they took that energy that like a lot of other bands would have directed into guitar harmonies and put into the vocal harmonies. Which uh, is pretty cool, you know. Considering it, it's, a, it's a genre dominated by the guitar, it's, you know, the vocals are important. But you know, one of the the premier things you think about with metal is guitar. It seems like yeah, that's important too. But we're doing more with the vocal stuff. And I when really, you got a singer like this, you can yeah, do that. You gotta, you gotta yeah. definitely. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that I respect a lot. 
And I like how they skipped like the stereotypical metal guitar solo, even though I do like those stereotypical metal guitars and I crave them. They just, they're just like, no, fuck it, we're gonna do our thing. And like, like was pointed out, it's kind of a restatement of the intro theme. And as for the end, nice gong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These guys give great gong. <laughs> yeah, to me, the drums are a standout, and the constant hi hat hits and the verses just kind of push the song forward, gives it its propulsion. Scott Rockenfield has always been an underrated drummer, in my opinion. You'll never hear his name brought up with metal drummers or rock drummers, but he's really good. Mm. More yeah, melodic, he's fucking awesome. Yeah. More melodic, harmonized riffing, including the solo that are kind of very prog rock oriented. And I even detect a little bit of a Brian May influence with it. The keyboards are becoming more and more prominent. Their presence is more strongly felt here. Keyboard stabs. And I know you use the word dated, and and that always has kind of a negative connotation to it. Oh, yeah. But for me, dated means, okay, dated means, all right, this reminds me of the 80s. I like the 80s. I like giving the keyboard stabs. I don't give a shit. The dated to me is not a negative word. Rainbow in the Dark has very dated keyboards, but take that out of the song, and it's not the same. Yeah, so I don't care about that stuff. The lyrics, again, could be about the vampire with the references to the night sun, the fear of the hunger and the master and slave. In the chorus are alternating Jeff Tate wails and sinister whispers, and this is another winner for me. It also was the second single. Uh, uh, uh. I never said blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I got kids, so we've seen Hotel Transylvania a few times in my house. The next track is Gonna Get Close to You, written by Lisa Dalbello. Jeremy, what do you say? Yeah, so I said earlier that I think the first time I heard this album, I probably made it through four tracks. I think this is the one that probably made me bail on this Turned record. Turned you off? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it turned me off big time at first, definitely. Yeah, it took me a long time to, to, to feel this song, and I love this song now, but it took a long time. This is a cover song from uh, Canadian artist Dalbello, who I had never heard of, although when I kind of Googled her, there's been a lot of people who have covered different songs by her, so... I don't know. Maybe she was popular and I just missed out on it. But um, This is the only thing I've ever heard from her. And I remember at the time not even knowing that this was a cover because it just seemed to, even though it was really weird, it seemed to fit into this album perfectly. So despite it being a really odd choice, it's probably a really good choice for a cover song for this record. Uh, Very eerie, electronic and layered. There's lots going on in the background here. It sounds a little bit fuller than the original to me. Like it's kind of amped up a little bit. I suspect uh, Scott Rock had a big hand in this song because he's he's got a lot of uh, kind of ambient outside projects that he does that sound a lot to me like he, 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 something that you would hear in this tune. I think he probably influenced this one a lot. I'm not a big fan of cover songs being on studio albums. I think that real estate is really valuable. But having said that, if you're going to put one on this record, this seems like the perfect song both from an atmospheric standpoint and from a thematic standpoint, as it's really focusing on what sounds like a stalker just fits perfectly on it. 
I, I have to imagine that it was the theme of the song that drove the decision to put it on this record. I kind of wonder if it wasn't maybe a last second addition to the record where maybe the record company said we need one more track on here. So they said, fuck it, let's cover this chick because her music sounds like us and Jeff looks just like her. But it's a cool track. Even the original is a cool song. I like the way it builds through the first three verses every time it adds something new into the verse, which builds the intensity of the song. Uh, really ratchets up the tension as it moves along. Uh, I love the dive bomb that leads us into verse two, and it brings the intensity back up as the guitars come in. I love Eddie's bass in verse three when he comes in, and he's just kind of thumping under the lyrics. When Jeff's singing, if you knew my infinite charm, he's just pulsing along behind that, and it really adds an edge to that section. Like the pre-chorus, dig those little harmonics that they do in there. Not a big fan of the chorus on this one. I think... Um, you know, it's it's tough to turn this one into a metal cover, and I think Jeff sounds a, a little out of his element here, almost like if you could reach out and touch his vocals during this time, that they'd be a little sticky. It's a little <laughs> creepy to me. <laughs> uh, but he kind of speaks on he kind of speaks the same lines underneath his singing. It it kind of adds a layer to it that's really cool. I think the song's good. I I couldn't imagine this record without it, even though it's a cover. Perfect choice for this record, and I think that it's the only cover Queensryche ever did on an original studio album. They'd put out a record of all covers many years later, but I think this is the only cover they ever did on an original studio album. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of it there, but it works perfect for this record. All right. Great. Boy, it definitely is a weird one. Yeah. But uh, but I, I there's kind of a charm to it in a weird way. I've been trying to figure out, because I listened to this song quite a few times, and uh, during the verse section, is that a keyboard? Is there, or just like a sustained guitar with an ebo doing the melody? Like, meow, 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 meow. I've always thought it was a keyboard, but I don't yeah, know. I could, I would, I could go either way. It probably is a keyboard. So. Yeah, I had the same thought listening to that song leading up to this episode where I thought, well, that sounds like an ebo. I had the same exact thought. Yeah. So maybe it is. Could be an ebo. Might be. There's no credit for it, yeah. but. Doesn't mean anything. Right, right. I, I think Tesla is the only band I've ever known to credit the Evo. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and it almost sounds to me like I can't tell if it's keyboards on this either. But there's like I don't know if yeah. they're like doing just muting the, the the strings and like doing it on guitar. But uh, it comes together in kind of a weird mix. But I do kind of like it. And then there's like somebody playing like the Edge of Seventeen guitar part in the background, which I've always. I've always kind of liked that part. So that that's interesting. It is a great stalker song. Um, I, apparently this Lisa Del Bello, I guess, I, I probably butchered the pronunciation of her name. She must have been like the Diane Warren of like eight hard rock 80s bands. <laughs> I just didn't, I was not aware of it at the time. But yeah, I agree about Jeff Tate's vocals being, there's some parts there it's just like, strange like his scream at 352 it sounds like he's having a little bit of a seizure or a doctor just shoved a finger up his ass he's like, he's like wasn't expecting it you know? <laughs> listen to that. like that's just fucking funny man so it kind of detracts from the eerie stalker feel with the proctology exam in the end but uh <laughs> that's how he gets to that third octave yeah <laughs> <laughs> Moon River. No, that's Fletch. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really kind of another part. Too. So the electronic drums were brought up. 
and I don't even know that Phil Collins used it, but there's like a Phil Collins like style drum fill towards the end, right yeah. after the proctology screen. Yes. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you can tell like, there's some Susudio stuff going on yeah. there. So this is a weird fucking choice. Yeah, it even has that gated sound. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Gated, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I I like it. It's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first song by Queensryche I ever heard. I saw the video for it, and I had no idea it was a cover tune either for the longest time. It was written by Canadian artist Lisa Dalbello for her 1984 album Human Forces. Oh, and and Queensryche, it's, you know, Who Man Forces. <laughs> and Queensryche metal it up a bit, but it's pretty wild how faithful the band stays to the original. Oh, wow. Even Jeff uses the exact same vocal inflections that Lisa Dalbello does for the most part, except for, you know, the proctology part. <laughs> This is super atmospheric and creepy with the keyboards taking over and kind of drowning out the guitars a little bit while kind of heightening the ominous dread factor as Jeff takes the viewpoint of an obsessed stalker who is always near his subject, always close by. The melodic guitar solo played by Chris DeGarmo, Apes the original Del Bello cut. I love Eddie Jackson's bass in the chorus. And this is why I do like that. It's so simple. But I like that. It, It catches my ear. That is why I do like this chorus more than Jeff's voice. It's so simple, but it's so chilling. Mm-hmm. Jeff really sounds like a sick ticket on this, and he sells his performance almost too well. You know, <laughs> he's got these vocal mannerisms that he does, and he, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And there's all these kind of weird stuff with his voice. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Telephone ring, ring. <laughs> he does all kinds of stuff like that, and he yeah. really pronounced on this track. I've always loved this track, though, and it was the first single. The following track is The Killing Words, written by Chris DeGarmo and Jeff Tate. All the dreams, the nightmare we share, the poison of love secure. It's deceiving and deceit is all we have, it's got to be Jeremy, hit us. Yeah, so we get our second kind of power ballad song, very final countdown keyboards to start this uh, track off. Goes into a really cool arpeggiated riff that falls away into a nice little acoustic piece under the verses with a really tasty little slide between stanzas that DeGarmo does. Lots of dark uh, ambience behind the pretty guitar in the verses. Rock and Field has these echoing toms that fall away Really just kind of give it a nice little um, pocket to sit in there. Love the course of this song when he's just belting over, over, too late to take a chance. Again, these are very singable parts to a song like this one. It took me a, a while to think of this as anything other than a minor track on this album, but now I really like this one. Um, we get some arpeggiated picking that leads us out of the course. Jeff really goes for it on verse two. Lots of melodrama in that that verse, and we get the line, you forced me to force you, me too, I guess, maybe, hashtag me too. Uh, strange <laughs> line in retrospect, not sure what he's getting at there, but it's there. Uh, but I think he sounds great on this song. We're, we seem to be talking about a relationship that's going bad. Pretty straightforward, I think. I love the solo on this song. I think this is Chris DeGarmo really channeling David Gilmore, which is where I think he's at his best, is when he's playing those kind of solos. 
we get a pretty cool progressive little bit under the vocals after the solo as Jeff sings about his wireless in his hand that's ringing, which always struck me as odd. Maybe it's because I grew up in the Midwest, but we always called those things cordless phones back then. And the wireless always threw me off now. It makes a lot more sense in 2019. But yeah, it's cool. A uh, cool section that hints at what's to come as the album moves forward. Another song that hangs on to the start of the next song. You probably wouldn't hear it without headphones, but it does. The, the band did an all-acoustic version of this song when they did MTV Unplugged. And I think even though we don't get the loud belted out over in the chorus, he kind of whispers it in that chorus. But I, I think I prefer that version. But yeah, I dig this song. I think it's a, a, a pretty cool minor song on this album. All right. Great. Um, I mean, just to say that I have a problem is that I watch way too much Netflix because when I heard this, all I could think of was Stranger Things. Yeah. Into that, that kind of keyboard sound. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, now I can't do anything but when I listen Which to Which is another retro 80s Yeah, like, I just, I just picture, like, you know, the red letters kind of coming out of focus and also yeah. Stranger Things <laughs> popped up when I heard this. But that doesn't take away from it. It's actually kind of a cool, mournful little keyboard part. The first guitar figure that you hear for the first is really great. And I like how they almost, like... At first, I thought, is that another guitar? But as I listened to it, I was like, I think, no, the keyboard's actually kind of uh, harmonizing with the guitar part, which I think is, makes for like a nice uh, textural choice on their part. Um, and of course, you get like a basic muted, a muted version, or like a little bit of a heavier version of the, that first guitar figure. As far as the guitar solo, it, yeah, I mean, it's decent. It doesn't particularly grab me, it seems more like guitar emoting. And I guess in some instances that worked. It, it, it's, it's not a horrible guitar solo. Just for whatever, it doesn't. It didn't grab me right off the bat, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, the program keyboard intro, very 80s. It gives way to more gothic atmospherics, gentle acoustic tinged verses, and powerful heavy soaring choruses. Jeff sings like his heart is breaking. Maybe a little precious, <laughs> but he opens it up on the over chorus. It's big and strong. Mm. I like Chris's soul. I think it's really good. It's very melodic and not relying on flashy tricks. It kind of plays into the emotion of the song. Lyrically, I interpret this as a man who realizes a dysfunctional relationship has come to an end, but it's hard to let go, even when she's so hurtful with her words. This is the type of song Queensryche can toss off dry-handed with no lotion, but it's still good. You know, I dig it. It grew on me. If you really want to chuckle, because I was like trying to find like reviews of this album outside of the Wikipedia stuff, I wanted to find like what their process was while they did this album. Uh, I found an interview from 1986 on uh, Much Music out of Canada. There's a show called Another Mick in the Wall. And I'd never, <laughs> except for the video for Queen of the Reich, I'd like, I hadn't seen them much. And, and Jeff Tate's got like this Eddie Munster. <laughs> Didn't they look great at this time? That was awesome. <laughs> that, that was the Dalbella look. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah it was. Yeah, I remember seeing that. a picture. I remember hearing the song, and the, the, even the video, they were all in that full regalia that they were wearing at the time. It was like, holy shit. <laughs> It was him and Chris DeGarmo, and DeGarmo's got, like, his hair, like, flipped up and teased and moosed on one side. It was fucking funny, It man. was crazy. <laughs> the next track is Surgical Strike, written by Chris DeGarmo and Michael Wilson.
Jeremy, let's have it. Yeah, so we get a real shift thematically here to the album, with, uh, and we're going to kind of stay on that track with one exception the rest of the way through, but we kind of move from more relationship-type songs into more political and societal bent. Um, they always did a great job, Queensryche did, when writing songs like this that were political and social, evidenced by the fact that the things they were writing about back then still seem to be relevant to us today. Uh, we get a riff that's composed pretty similarly to the uh, opening riff in Walk of the Shadows with two guitars kind of working together to create one riff and lay down a foundation. Cool rhythm section on this song. Eddie just thumps away while Scott rocks down the tom. Guitars are ringing out in the background, and then they move into more of a descending pick riff that provides some movement inside of that groove. We get some cool layering and effects on Jeff's vocals throughout this song. Again, a sign of things that are going to come in the second half of the record. This track is credited to DeGarmo and Wilton, and I think you can tell who wrote which part of the song. The complexity of the verses sound like more like DeGarmo to me, and that straightforward metal stuff in the chorus sounds very much like Wilton. And I, and I think this is a Wilton solo as well. I'm um, not sure on that. I haven't checked, but it just sounds to my ears like it's probably a Wilton solo. I'm not a big fan of the staccato vocal deliveries on the chorus, uh, when the Jeff's singing, we taught them not to feel. He does this on a few songs, including one that's going to come down the pike here a little bit. Just always felt a little too obvious and basic for, for my taste. Again, like the Killing Words, we get a more progressive breakdown after the solo. This time we get a, a cool and heavy keyboard progression in there that kind of leads into an interesting, almost reverse echo type thing that brings us back into the course. Uh, again, more hints as to what we're going to see in the second half of this record that's about to come up. We get a cool little timing change as this song gets into its outro where Scott changes up the beat a few times through the last 40 seconds, adds a little bit more flavor to what's a pretty straightforward song up to that point. Puts a nice little bow on the side one of this record. Thematically, song about soldiers and warfare and the nature of 20th century warfare. Not particularly groundbreaking in and of itself. But it does give us a new direction as we move forward through this album. And we also kind of pick up a new idea here that's going to continue, which is that the future is already here. And we're going to hear uh, Jeff talk about that frequently through the second half of the album. But it's, it's a real emphasis. Here he, t he has lines like, there's no turning back and its time is arriving now. Really just kind of orienting the listener to the idea that what I'm talking about isn't somewhere in the future, but it's right here now and and we need to understand and realize that. Overall, cool little jam, a uh, little more musical substance than it seems like there might be at first listen, uh, and I dig it. Great. I really like this one, too. Um, we've got some solid guitar interplay happening in the intro, and if you listen, Ed, Eddie Jackson's got this little bass walk-up on it. I get the impression that he's like a really smart bassist. He wasn't just like Rick savaging it in. You know, he actually, like He added to the songs a yes, lot. Yes, he did. Yeah, without a doubt. Yep. And I, I got that on Mindcrime, too. The chorus is, you know, it's anthemic and it's cool. My only thing is, and we talked a little about their guitar sound, and maybe it's just the headphones I was listening to, but it, there could be something to beef it up just a little bit more. There's almost like a thinness to it that it's got potential, but like if they had maybe just kind of done, maybe, I don't know what they could have done to beef it up, but it just needs just a little, just a little stuff more oomph to it. But other than that, it's a cool chorus too, which these guys were more than capable of writing. And we get some nasty-ass guitar solos. I mean, and these two weirdos could really play. Wilton, I, I guess, I, I just learned it was Wilton. Probably was Wilton. But, yeah, this uh, one was Wilton. Yeah, dude, the guy could rip it up. I don't know how much it was with choices of the band and how much it was a choice of his, but there's a great guitar solo in here. Then around the 157 mark, I think it is, we get like that odd breakdown with the keyboard stabs. 
And um, Jeremy, I'm going to basically say what you said at the end. What I really liked is that that Rockenfield has these things where he like plays in all four beats, and then uh, he comes back, he, he'll do it, and then he'll play on the and of all four beats. Yeah. And then like go back and forth. I thought that was a really cool choice for us to, to definitely spruce it up a little, change it up a little yeah. bit for an end. So this song's a nice nugget. Yeah. This is more of a straightforward hard rocker. It's faster paced. And the rhythm section, like Jeremy was saying, propels the tune. I like Eddie Jackson's bass tone. It's got a touch of distortion without going overboard with it. And he is actually a pretty inventive player. And Scott's verse beat is syncopated and interesting. Michael plays the solo. This one's less melodic and more of a fast note shredding style, but it's still decent. I like it. And here's where the album takes a turn lyrically and thematically, like Jeremy was saying. The lyrics reference a fighter pilot's mentality and how they must be precise and more mechanical in their thinking, removing emotion from the equation and being programmed to perform their tasks. I like. The, I actually like the way Jeff sings. We've taught them not to feel. I like staccato <laughs> like that. Sort of robotic, fitting in with the theme. And then there's a percussive synth breakdown that drives this military programming point home before that cool phasing effect. Or was it? You said reverse echo. Maybe that's what it did. That. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah. the fighter jet thing made, made me think of that. Mm-hmm. And it takes the song back to the final chorus. I'm into this one. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on New Regal, written by Chris DeGarmo and Jeff Tate. Jeremy, your thoughts? Man, I love this song, too. I could probably spend the entirety of this episode just on this one song. It's so rich in detail. There's just really no way to do it justice. An epic way to start side two. In my opinion, one of their best songs. We kind of start off on a single bass note that fades in. It reminds me of the way Orion by Metallica starts. It's just kind of, it's only there for a few seconds, but it sounds very similar in my ears. But we we quickly get some layered keyboards in there that kind of wobble and rise into a crescendo that drops us into a really cool acoustic riff with a real percussive edge to it. I think the riff is mostly just octaves of the root, but it sounds really beautiful, really majestic. It gives the listener the feeling that they're arriving at something new and grand, which is appropriate for a song uh, whose title translates to new rule. Acoustic then transitions into the dirty descending riff that's pretty, pretty reminiscent, I think, of The Whisper. We get lots of ambient keyboard in the background going on beyond the riff. As the riff builds momentum, Scott Rock comes in with some hi-hat work um, that makes it seem like the song is about to take off. But instead, everything kind of falls away and breaks back down. We get some tom hits punctuated with Eddie's bass, lots of ambient stuff. Uh, We get a gun being fired in the background over and over and over as we go through these verses. Jeff comes in on the verses with really heavy effects on his voice, really low-fi and distant-sounding. And then after the third line, it comes in full sound into a hi-fi sound. And it's just awesome as it leads into line four. Again, kind of feels like we're coming out of a fog and into something new. Main riff comes back in, some techno-sounding hi-hat work that, again, is, is kind of reminiscent of the whisper. We break down for verse two. Jeff comes in fully hi-fi again. 
we get some dive bombs in the background and we get some ringing chords added to the mix, which kind of bring this section of the song out a little bit. And what a course on this one. I mean, incredible guitar playing and, and chord phrasing under the course. It's really hypnotic. It's a type of progression that makes you realize you suck at songwriting. You should just give up. <laughs> at least that was my takeaway when I heard it. it. Really reminiscent of Sweet Sister Mary. I think you could probably sing either one of these courses over the top of the other one. I love both of those songs, but I prefer this one, I think, probably just because it came first. But then the guitar resolves back into the solo and under the line when Jeff sings, keep the flame, we can't let this world remain. There's just this little run that Chris DeGarmo does, and, and I don't know you can pick up on it without, without headphones, but it's just understated to the point that you know a casual listener wouldn't notice, but it's so rewarding when you take the time to unpack this music and, and really dig into it. Two seconds of pure bliss as we break down into the solo. I love the vocal arrangement on this course, the way we basically have three or two different vocal lines kind of doing their same their own thing. Uh, again, almost a call of response with just Jeff. It, it's more, I think it's layered in a manner that's more similar to like the Beatles than it would be Judas Priest, for instance. Really cool. Uh, I love it when Jeff's belting out it's time for the world to hear and new regal is here. It's a great sing along when you're in the car and a precursor of more to come from this album. Solo is just okay. I, I don't care for the solo section of the song. I think it's a little jagged and, and I don't think it flows real well, but thankfully it's pretty short. We're back into the course again. I think it's even better the second time around is Jeff soars. He's got a great growl in his voice when he says it's time for the world to hear he goes way up the register into the final new regal is here as he screams it out and lets it hold out over the outro. Brings you to the peak of this song, and it's just perfect. I love it. Get an extended outro with the guitar playing, some cool harmonic shapes that I think are probably formed around the, the same chord as the acoustic intro was. Uh, we get lots of ambient stuff, lots of sampled voices, including, I think, Ronald Reagan's talking in there about ballistic missiles, which is pure 80s bliss to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thematically, we're still on the societal, political side of the spectrum here, a new day dawning, if you will. Plays almost like a sequel to Take Hold of the Flame from The Warning. Lots of impenetrable lyrics here, but they're very poetic. We get some allusion to the new role having an element of technology to it, which we're going to revisit again as we move forward. And we get circuit screams and we get uh, electric time shocks and just some, some suggestive things in there that, again, seem like they live somewhere in a narrative that we don't get. And then we, we kind of get more commentary on the fact that the future is the present. We get lines like, hail the new arrival on. It's not a dream anymore. I can feel it's time. So we're back to that theme again. Uh, in closing, I think this is a brilliant song. If I wanted to introduce someone to Queensryche to see if they like the Queensryche song, I would probably play them Walk in the Shadows off this record. But if I wanted them to really understand what Queensryche was all about, I think this would be one of the go-to songs. Love this one. One of their best. A great epic on this album, and I just love it. Ray, I couldn't agree with you more, man. This is a great track. It's moody as all hell. And you mentioned it was, I couldn't tell if that was bass or keyboard in that little intro for this, but um, I like how it goes. I can't tell if he's actually playing a slide guitar or if he's just like glissing up from one note to the octave to make it get that, that doubled kind of a feel. 
But I love that. And then, of course, he throws the tritone in there, which adds to the eeriness factor. Yeah, it's got a great just melodic, uh, distorted guitar riff. And what the hell is the effect on the vocals in the first section? Because I cannot feel like... Initially, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah just, I don't know. What in the hell is, but I like it, you know? It, yeah. it's, it's got, you know, like the Rudy computer from uh, the Jetsons. Good yeah. morning, that's, Mr. Jetson. Yeah, that's what made me think of, too. Yeah, and I dig that. And, 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 and what you, Jeremy, what you brought about the theme of the, this portion of the album, that does, I, I, can, I can see why they chose to do that. It's awesome. And the chorus just friggin' kills me. Um, you got great vocal arrangements, and the melody is really cool. Like, the I can hear the chimes, and I can see your eyes. Those are, like, those call and response things. I love those those response parts. Yeah. I, like, that just kind of, like, I could listen to that over and over again. And then you got the, kind of a cool guitar interlude at, th- at the three-minute mark with some guitar harmonies. And it kind of reminds me of the breakdown to Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Hmm. Without that... Mm. Yeah, in the background. Yes. Like that. I mean, I don't think they were doing it to ape it or in any way, shape, or form. No. But it's, it's vibe-wise, it kind of reminded me of that. But no, this song is friggin' awesome. Come Halloween, I'm definitely playing the shit out of this song. <laughs> <laughs> so, New Regal is apparently German for New Order, and now we're getting deeper into the man versus machine concept that the second half of the record really promotes. It's a dissonant acoustic guitar passage that's that tritone, right? That's why mm-hmm. it has that weird mm-hmm. yeah. sound. I love that. Yeah. It dissolves into more keyboard atmospherics. It's meant to be kind of cold and mechanical as we go into the machine world. Even Jeff's initial vocals are processed. It sounds robotic, kind of mm-hmm. like we were talking about. Then he sounds more human as the machines are learning, wanting the humans to join them and becoming a higher form of life. This is, you know, high concept kind of shit in the 80s that resonates even more today with AI technology making news and, you know, breeding conspiracy theories up the ass that you mm. hear all about now. Mm. The guitars are still there, though. DeGarmo and Wilton deliver a nice guitar mini solo, just in case you were wondering if they forgot how to rock. <laughs> the chorus is cool. How the arrangement with the call and response thing, it's great. And yes, it really does remind me of Sweet Sister Mary. <laughs> this is good. This is not a favorite of mine, actually, but it's good. I'm not going to say it's a bad track. Right on. The following track is Chemical Youth, We Are Rebellion. Written by Jeff Tate and Michael Wilton. Yeah, I think this one's a pretty mixed bag for me. I think if it hadn't been for the sequencing of uh, Dream and Infrared, this one might have been my stinker. I just feel like this one sits a little bit better in terms of track listing on this record. I think my big problem with the, with this particular song, it just doesn't feel complete. It, it almost feels like maybe they got through uh, the first couple minutes of this song and, and they needed one more tune for the record or something. So they just threw something on the end. Yeah, it, it is very undercooked. Uh, definitely a Wilton song. You can definitely tell that. Uh, again, we get another sampled voice that leads us into this song. For me, the opening riff to this song is less like listening to Queensryche and more like watching my dog chase its tail. It just kind of <laughs> goes around in circles and never really goes in on itself. <laughs> but I like the verses on this song. and It's pretty cool the way they're put together. I think the chorus falls pretty flat for me. 
I like the little run, definitely a Wilton run that's in that course, really a metal run. Certainly Wilton's the more metal guy out of the two, and you can tell his influences. I dig the line in the course, Oral Supremus, and that's Oral as in A-U-R-A-L, which has to do with hearing, not O-R-A-L. I am an Oral Supremacist. (laughs) 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 I'm a cunning linguist. Yeah, we get uh, more spoken words from Jeff in the middle of this song, rambling about making a difference in the world. I don't know. Uh, Thematically, we're still in that political social realm. We get a little bit of technology mixed in there again. We get more of those staccato vocals in the middle of this. And I, again, I, it's just not my thing. I don't, I don't, I love Queensryche. I've accepted those things, but it just feels a little lazy to me. Interesting tie in to New Regal, Take Hold of the Flame from the Warning. We're talking about the youth being new youth, new leaders of the world, a new order emerging. It all sounds pretty young and naive to me at this point in my life. And I think it's pretty interesting that. We have several songs on this record that talk about those things. We had a couple of songs on the warning that go into the same kind of ideas about the youth are going to be the new leaders of the world. And we're going to have this political revolution and we're going to fix the problems. We're going to fix the world. And then the very next album is Mind Crime, uh, which is pretty much of a, about a young man whose political idealism ruins his life. So it's it's a pretty interesting change in theme between those two records and maybe a little bit of the real world coming through here. I think it's the breakdown of this song where the issues become apparent. It just really feels incomplete. We get some more spoken word. We get some dive bombs, some more drums rolling. The end of this song really reminds me of For Whom the Bell Tolls. It just feels like we don't know what to do, so we'll just throw some dive bombs in, throw some drums in, and then we'll just wrap it up. So uh, I think it's a pretty disappointing song, and I think it's the low point in the second side of this record to me. Okay, Ray? So this, for me, was like the very first time in my recent history of listening to Queen's record. I've actually heard them play like a guitar riff in unison. And I thought, well, that's different. Yeah. You know, I, I like, I prefer the guitar hunter play stuff than, than doing stuff in unison. But okay, you know, that's the thing. And because I'm an idiot, I thought they were saying, hey, hey. It's like, it's like okay, now this predates Def Leppard's hysteria <laughs> by at least a full year. I wonder if they, was going to influence, if they influenced the guys in that band. And then I like looked at the lyrics like, oh, it's lead me, hear me, save me, free me. Not, hey, hey, <laughs> moron. Uh, <laughs> but still got that kind of anthemic kind of gang kind of whatever thing going on there. And thank you, Jeremy, thank you for answering that question because my next note part or my next point is like that I like that little lead guitar fill in the chorus. And I was like, who did that? And it's like, it sounds like it was a Michael Wilton kind of thing. And I like that. Like I rewound and listened to that part a couple times over. Uh, you had mentioned the staccato part in one of the other in one of the earlier songs, and uh, I actually don't mind that if we don't stand together part. It just kind of like changes things up a little bit. But um, I don't like that. You know, doesn't no. like it. No. <laughs> the thing I don't get about the song is what the hell is going off the drums in the outro? It just seems kind of like a sloppy mess in the end. Mm. It's just like I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't get where they're trying to get at with this in the end. So it's a bit of a miss. Yeah, it's interesting to note that this kind of dials back on the keyboards and the guitars leap to the fore. I think this is deliberate as the organic, chemical youth, realizing that technology has become like like a religion taking over society, form a rebellion against the machines. If they don't stand together, they stand to lose the future. Scott's drums are a highlight for me as he plays some cool polyrhythms throughout the track and his drums are phased from side to side under Chris's solo. But the solo itself is a bit underwhelming for me. This whole track just feels off. 
It just really misses the mark for me, and it's Aaron Stinky Stinker. <laughs> the next track is London, written by Chris DeGarmo, Jeff Tate, and Michael Wilton. Jeremy, give us your thoughts. Yeah, this one's another Queensryche classic, in my opinion. I think, um, so musically, we kind of come in on a, a single strummed guitar, and we're handed off to Eddie, who's going to thump in on the bass for us yet again. Uh, guitar ringing out over those chords and over the, the bass and drums in a similar way to maybe Breaking the Silence or I Don't Believe in Love on Minecraft. I think the harsh drums really stand out here again. And I, I mentioned earlier, I saw Neil Kernan mention that they had recorded this on acoustic drums and he was talking about where they recorded them to get that harsh sound. And I think it sounds pretty similar to going to get close to you drum wise uh, on this song. Very harsh at the beginning when everything comes in, it kind of puts that to the background, but that drum sounds a little bit odd to me. Jeff sounds great. I love the course, great guitar solo on this one. I think it's one of their best. I love the way it trades off between the two guitars and then comes back into a harmonized and then it goes back to a solo and then back to harmonized just really cool uh harmonized guitar riff comes up the neck at the end to go back into the verse which again i keep referring to other queen's songs but i think you could play that solo over the song lady jane which would come a promised land a few years later i think those two those two would fit perfectly one song to the other it seems like it's it's almost the same thing thematically we go back again now we're back into the relationship type stuff Back into the vampirism stuff. Um, it seems like it blah, blah. Yeah, fits much better with the stuff that's on side one. Essentially, you've got 10 original songs on this record. Five of them are more of this relationship type stuff, and five of them are more society and political type technology stuff. I suspect that this song ended up where it ended up just through the flow of the album. I don't, it's, it's hard to imagine this song being up front with the other ballads, but. Weird spot for it. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but I suspect that's probably why it's here. Lyrically, I think this is where we get the strongest suggestions that our narrator is some kind of vampiric thing. He's suggesting he's been around a long time with lines like, I wish I could remember your name, or we'd walk the streets like long ago. Uh, I hear the screams from long ago. Uh, we get maybe our most direct reference to that when he says they cry, remember blood red streaks on velvet throats at night. He says, sometimes I wish I could have taken your place. You know, I don't want to live forever. Very vampire stuff. Very, very cool. You put it with those other five songs. And again, it feels like there's a bigger narrative here that maybe just didn't get flushed out all the way. Love this song. I think Jeff's a little bit pitchy on the second half of it, but I can overlook it and enjoy this song. And I love it. All right. Ray. Uh, this is another one of my favorites on this album. It sounds almost like a keyboard type of a synth, like a synth bass line to me, but maybe it's just like an uh, overly distorted bass. I can't tell. But it's kind of weird. It doesn't, like, it almost doesn't fit. I mean, it just kind of comes in and it kind of stands out there. It's not bad, but it's like, I, I don't really understand why they chose that intro, but okay. It's uh, weird. Yeah, I do love the guitars in this. It sounds almost like they got like a chorus effect on the, on the guitar during the verse section. 
which kind of goes into a, a guitar, and then we go into the the solo stuff. It starts out with kind of a guitar harmony kind of thing with like a tricky lead part, and then the trade offs are great, man. These these trade offs are. They're awesome. I mean, these guys could write really good melodic solos. Uh, I mean, probably, I mean, this is like, they're getting more into like Satriani territory. I mean, when they do do it, they do it well. I just wish they did more of it. Um, these two weirdos could definitely play. Without a doubt. And that's what I like. That's what I like about <laughs> these fucking weirdos. They can do it, but they choose not to. Um, I couldn't tell if it was like vampires. And so I was like, look, looking up on people arguing about what the lyrics were actually about. There's two or three people who thought this was like, could be about Mary Jane Kelly, who was like the last Jack person, the was the last person, Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Killed, and it could so you think the part of the velvet throats yeah. and the ripping and right. stuff like that. I don't know if it is. I couldn't tell you. I think I personally lead more towards the vampire Me stuff, too. but it would be kind of cool if they did a song about Mary Jane Kelly and try to put it that, you know, like the guy had a relationship with a prostitute that happened to be her yeah. and she got killed and, that's why he can't remember her name because yeah, it's just some whore. And we love songs about hookers. Yes, so. we do. <laughs> so, but yeah, vampires, hookers, it's all good. <laughs> and this song is pretty killer. <laughs> and suddenly we abruptly shift back to the Vampire Diaries as our vampire buddy from earlier in the album apparently killed the woman he intended to join him. And he's mourning her with memories of London, which is where he killed her long ago. And there also is that Jack the Ripper sort of reference. So I'm guessing that he's been around since Victorian London. He can't even remember her name. Just vocals are in this heart-wrenching style, and the music is also reminiscent of earlier tracks with the quiet verses and bombastic, catchy choruses framing a moody ballad that's sympathetic to our lonely, lovesick Nosferatu. I like the solo on this one. It's mostly harmonized with a few trade-off lines between the guitarists. Mixing in melodic passages with note flurries, this might be my favorite solo on the record, too. It's really good. The keyboards bring back the dark gothic feel, and I really like this one. Though its placement on the album is baffling, it should definitely have been on side one with the other vampire tracks. <laughs> the, the sequencing of this album is head-scratching in places. The penultimate track is Screaming in Digital, written by Chris DeGarmo, Jeff Tate, and Michael Wilton. Jeremy, what do you say? Man, this fucking song is just awesome. It's it's not an epic song, but I think it's really the crescendo of this album. We come in on a real menacing choral note, and we get this kind of awesome little diminished, ugly-sounding chords and voices that are shaped beneath it. Uh, Eddie's bass comes in kind of similar to London, where we're just kind of thumping in, but we get these descending chords that are hanging on it until uh, we get this killer breakdown. Uh, we, this almost synth bass that forms the real structure of the verses. Another incredible layered vocal chorus, similar to New Regal, kind of a call and response thing with just Jeff. And this time we're we're in the area of AI, and we got a real interesting version here of you know. And today we worry about AI taking us over. And this song's really from the perspective of the AI, saying that you know I. I want to be free. I want to be independent. And, and you as the human is my kind of my slave master. Really cool idea. Really dig it. 
great solo on this song. I think this one's my favorite solo on this record. Love this solo. One of their best, in my opinion. Love it when Jeff comes in at the end and just belts out. No one can hear when you're screaming in digital and everything just crescendos right there. And then we kind of drop off on this digital sound effect that spirals us out into the next song. Love this one. Just fucking great. Ray, um, I'm going to give this song like a triple plus for uh, – and it's, it's really like what? Maybe three minutes long or something? It's short. They, they pack a lot of power into one song in this one. I actually kind of like when I heard the the intro. It's like it sounds almost reminds me of Mongolian throat singing the tuba thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. The intro, and I've always dug yeah. that. So it's a good way to intro. And they got this cool muted riff playing behind the power chords, which I really like. More great guitar interplay, and that synth bass line. It almost kind of like reminds me of like industrial mu- music. Like, you know, were they listening to like a lot of Skinny Puppy at this point? Who knows? But they, I suppose they could have. And then it goes into like a swing part of the song. It definitely there's a there's a more of a swing portion of it, like between after the verse section. Um, they even have good guitar interplay on the pre-chorus as well. And then Jeff Tate gets a really great Halford scream towards the end. And then we get I I thought this was like Pac-Man. Like, <laughs> Somebody unplugged the AI at that point, and they didn't get the cherries, and they, they didn't eat the power pills, so they could eat Inky, Binky, Pinky, and Slinky, and Dinky, and whatever the fuck the name of the ghosts are in yeah. Pac-Man. But no, this is, it just comes, hit you hard, and it hits you fast, and it's a great song. Yeah. Now we switch back to full-on Terminator mode. Robotic drums seemingly straight from that movie. Made me totally think of that. James Cameron. Yeah. The accompanying keyboards pounding with martial threatening overtones. When the guitars appear, they're worked into the music as a whole as the mechanical and organic become one, and the intensity of this track ramps up even through the guitar solo, which is awesome. The lyrics take the point of view of the machines this time. Computers made flesh, infiltrating and learning from humanity. The machines are not humanity's slaves and they're feeling emotions. It's taking that man versus machine concept to the conclusion where mankind does not come out on top, a nightmarish future vision. I like how the tension just steadily builds in this track, builds and builds and builds. It's never released until it ends. Bam! Just like that. There's no... The music doesn't release it at all. No, 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 no. Definitely. It almost leaves you breathless, and it's very cool. Yeah. And that brings us to the final track, I Will Remember, written by Chris DeGarmo. Jeremy, what do you think of this last one? So we get a straight-up ballad in this record, which is an interesting choice, but feels like it fits right into Queen's Direction wheelhouse to me. Uh, again, we kind of fade in on a menacing choral note, and then we just get a beautiful acoustic piece. Uh, we get Jeff whistling. I mean, how cool is that? Talking about visions of the future and, and lines like, we wonder how machines can steal each other's dreams. Back to that AI uh, idea again. Beautiful harmonized solo, just breathtaking really for a metal band to pull something like that off at that point in time love this song not a ton to say about it because it's a pretty straightforward song but it's just beautiful and it's it's a cool way to bring the album down and and lead us out of the album kind of like pink floyd or somebody would i I really dig this song ray i gotta say it's 
these guys, I will never compare to Tesla. I'll have mentioned them only once another time in this podcast or in this, in this particular podcast, but, uh, kind of reminded me of the end of mechanical resonance. It goes out in a bummer, you know, I, that's, it's a, it's a beautiful bummer at that. I mean, I, and I love depressing music, but this one is definitely a downer of a song. Um, we get, um, some really pretty acoustic figure over the Mongolian tuba singer keys in the background. Um, and the vocal melody, I think, is is just really awesome because it, the "I Will Remember" part ends on kind of a major second, which kind of almost gives it like an uh, like an Asian melody kind of a feel, which is really kind of, for lack of a better word, as I've said before, pretty. It gets kind of guitar chordy too, with like some of the things that they're playing, which which I like. You know, I mean, there was these aren't like you know power chords and it's just not arpeggiated stuff. It's like he's actually almost kind of a folky kind of a thing going on, which I like a lot. We have some, a great acoustic guitar mini section over the top of the guitar figure. And it almost makes me remind you of, uh, there's a breakdown in Pink Floyd's High Hopes that it kind of reminds me of. Although this is way before High Hopes ever came out. So who knows? Maybe these guys influenced David Gilmore and Rick Wright. But maybe it's just a coincidence. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is a weird-ass album, and it goes out in a weird way for me. It's, all of a sudden, it's just like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> so like this this is something I would like listen to if I want to be depressed. Now, yeah. There are certain songs that'll do that and this would do it beautifully. But it's a great song at that. So yeah, that's what I got. This is acoustic based and layered with Chris playing twelve string guitar and it comes on like a gentle romantic ballad, though there are those low ominous choir keyboards that keep the vibe a little unsettled. Ooh. <laughs> Lyrically, Jeff said this is a song about spy satellites, so there's still that technological intrusion theme lingering around, couched in pretty sonics. The infiltration continues. The vocals are sung with restraint and are soaked in reverb, so they echo dramatically in your ears. It's a slow burn closer that works. I dig it. Now that the track by track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which must be targeted for termination. <laughs> Jeremy, what are your final thoughts on Rage for Order? Yeah, I just love this record. I think uh, as the band would go along, they would become a little more fully realized and a little more refined in their songwriting, but there's just so much here to dig into. I love the experimental nature of this record. And, and even though I, I think Mind Crime is a better record, I listen to this one far more often. I find it far more interesting. I give it a five. All right. Ray? Well, it's kind of funny. I went back and forth this album. The first time I heard it, I, like, I liked it. It was different. The second time I gave it a run through, I was like, man, I just did not like the keyboards. But in preparing for this podcast, I listened to it, and uh, I love how fucking weird it is because <laughs> I'm a weirdo. Yeah. And, uh, I know. And I get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and their guitars are weirdos. And so you got that combined with you know a great lead singer, a wicked good rhythm section in my mind. I don't always get the choices that they made as far as like we've mentioned so far as the 800 pound gorilla in the room is the sequencing issue. I'm going to go with four. Yeah, I think a four. I, I think this is, I don't know whether I like this more than Operation Mind Crime or I like it for different reasons. I'd say I probably like it for different reasons. I really love my Operation Mind Crime, but this album's got a lot of charm. I could see it becoming at 1.5, but I'm going to mm-hmm. go for four. Queensryche came off the road for their first full-length album, The Warning, after being on tour in 1984 and 85, opening for Kiss and Iron Maiden. At this point, they were more of a traditional metal band influenced by such European stalwarts as Maiden and Judas Priest in style and sound. 
For their next album, the band decided to experiment with their music more and adopt more progressive metal elements, including keyboards, in an effort to create a layered and polished sound, which was fashionable at the time this was the mid-80s. They also brought more complexity to their arrangements and melodies and steered toward a different approach with their lyrics in many of the songs. Rage for Order, in a lot of ways, is an album of two halves, the Vampire half and the Terminator half. For the most part, Queensryche pulls off this trick well. The writing is solid and the playing is stupendous, and Jeff Tate had a hell of a voice. When Rage for Order was released, musically it was received well by the metal community and gained the band some momentum, particularly due to Jeff's vocal prowess. But the image of the band had changed to more of a gothic or glam metal style with long trench coats, heavy makeup, and bizarre hairdos that made them look ridiculous. This was encouraged by the band's management and fortunately only lasted for this album cycle. For me, I see this as a transitional album for Queensryche, as they were really discovering who they were musically and there are elements here that would be developed further and taken to the next level with the next album, Operation Mindcrime. That said, there's a lot on this record to like, and I give Rage for Order a three and a half. There was a period of time in the 80s when Queensryche was one of my very favorite bands, and this album helped cement that status in my mind. It's not a masterpiece, but I highly recommend it. Now we'd like to thank Jeremy Riley for joining us on the podcast. We hope you had a good time. Yeah, it was a great time. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, God. Come back, man. If you're, if you're, if you're, <laughs> let us know if there's something you want to do again, for sure. Is there anything you'd like to promote or plug? No, not at all. I just I just have a good time listening to you guys. I think you're great, and, and I appreciate uh, that you had me on. All right. Thank you. We got a Facebook recommendation. It comes to us from Todd Whitley, and it says, Love this podcast. Aaron's knowledge and reviews have opened my ears to some deep cuts that I had missed. Hardly anyone has full album experiences anymore. Keep up the good work. It is appreciated. Thank you, Todd, for the recommendation. And we appreciate any iTunes reviews and Facebook recommendations we get as it helps get the podcast noticed and listened to. And thanks, as always, to all our listeners. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you prefer to do it that way, and yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Give us a shout and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. Thank you for spending time at the castle of Count Concula. So, let's see. I'm going to take a quick drink and then we'll get it going. Ah. We're doing Queens right, right? Oh, shit. I thought we were doing banana. Shit. Oh, so. shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had my notes for Queen's Summer. summer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we ready, fellas? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Mm-hmm.
Do you like to be called Jeremy? Is there any other nickname yeah, you go by? Good. That's fine. Jeremy's fine. No, no, Jeremy's good. Oh, J-Rock? No. J-Dog? J-Dog? All right, here we go. For real. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Aaron Martell. And it's Dave Fargus. <laughs> oh man, already dude? Right out of the gate. Yeah. Alright, here we go. You said you These guys just fucking like her, man. That is great.